Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I hope this finds you well and smiling. I'm at my studio in West Orange, New Jersey, looking forward to a sure-to-be heartfelt conversation with author John Sardella, who will be speaking to us from Naples, Florida, about his helpful, touching book titled A Journey Without a Map. After 27 years of marriage, John lost the love of his life when his wife Margaret passed away following a seven-year battle with cancer. John looked for a book that would give him space for his pain and inspire him to move forward, but all he found were clinical books written by psychologists. That was John's motivation to write A Journey Without a Map, which demonstrates the power of connection and shows that with the proper perspective, a person going through the loss of a loved one can still continue on and live life to its fullest extent. John, who was a teacher for 16 years and a principal for 15 years, is also the author of two previous books titled How to Start a Successful Youth Lacrosse Program and L is for Lacrosse, an ABC book. I'll soon be talking with John about A Journey Without a Map, Stories of Loss, Grief, and Moving Forward, which is a number one Amazon bestseller in the categories of psychoanalysis, oncology, and grief and loss. But first, we need to take a quick minute to show some love to our sponsors. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hi, John. Welcome to Grief and Rebirth podcast. Hey, Irene. How are you? Thanks for having me on today. My true pleasure. Let's begin our interview with this question. Your journey without a map began when you learned that your precious wife, Margaret, had cancer. What would you like to share with us about the seven years that spanned Margaret's cancer diagnosis to her funeral? Well, uh, thank you for asking that question. Uh, you know, Margaret, my wife, we were married for 27 years. Uh, met back in college at Cortland State where we both went to school. I was actually graduated and I went back and I visited and I met her and from there we fell in love and we got married. Um, after having three kids and uh, really just living a great life together and, and forming a family in 2010, she was uh, she had pain in her uh, abdominal area and she went to the doctors and they found a node that was uh, in her pancreas. And as uh, the node was uh, diagnosed, it was diagnosed that it was cancerous. And, and through that diagnosis, what ended up happening was um, it began it began our journey. Um, you know, I 
doctor friend of mine said, uh, you know, hey, you're on a journey without a map. And I'll talk to him about him a lot more as uh, we continue this podcast. And the journey was definitely without a map. We ended up uh, trying to figure out she had a very unique cancer called a neuroendocrine tumor. And it was in her pancreas. And a lot of uh, doctors didn't know what it was about, but we were very fortunate to be able to connect with Dana-Farber. And she did a clinical trial at Dana-Farber, which helped to stabilize the cancer for three and a half years. So you had a little more time with her, thank God. Yeah, yeah, we did. And we were very fortunate. And the doctors were optimistic that she would live with that tumor for a very long time. The only thing is they couldn't go in and they couldn't operate on it because the portal vein ended up having a blood clot. And that blood clot really interfered with anybody doing an operation because it was too dangerous. So doctors all over the country who we reached out to um, didn't said that it would be too dangerous to do an operation and because of that blood clot. And if it shifts, it could be deadly. So we just said, okay, we'll work with the clinical trial. We worked with Dana-Farber who um, at Dana-Farber was Dr. Jen, Jennifer uh, Chan. She was absolutely fantastic. Great bedside manner, just a great person. Now, where was all this taking place? I know you live in Naples now. Where was all this taking at the, at the time, we were in Liverpool, New York, which is a suburb of Syracuse, so Syracuse, New York area. And so every other week, we would travel to Dana-Farber, and she would either have scans or a doctor's visit. And it was a quick turnaround, like a 24-hour turnaround. And uh, we would stay with some good friends on Thursday night and then go to the doctor visit on a Friday, and then we'd be home by dinner on Friday. And then she would just take her medicine and at first it was a chemo with a stabilizer and the stabilizer was called a Finitor. And at the time it was called RAD001 and it got uh, FDA approved after eight months. And that FDA approval meant that we could stay in Syracuse and work with a local doctor, Dr. Wong, and just be able to monitor it. The thing is after three and a half years, it metastasized to her liver and it became now a different focus. And then for the last three years or so, um, she was on about nine different type of uh, type of um, treatments in order to battle the cancer until wow. finally she succumbed to it in January uh, 8th of 2017. Wow, wow, yeah. wow. Yeah, it well, was excuse me, John? It was very intense. Yeah, very intense, my God, wow. Well, how did you two not become victims to her disease? I mean, it must have been, you were living with so much stress and so much distress. What we did was once we found out more information, uh, we connected with my very good friend who's Dr. Mike Lacombe, who I grew up with, played basketball even within uh, middle school. You know, we're still good friends. As a matter of fact, before this podcast, we were texting each other because he's coming down to Florida for a visit and we're going to connect next week. So I'm very excited about that. Wonderful. Uh, but he just happens to be a radiology oncologist and it's his they actually say no accidents right yeah no accidents and 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 it ended up being where he said that you're on a journey without a map and that not do not be a victim to this disease do not let it control you you control it and from the beginning my wife and i took that very we took that to heart to say, hey, we're going to try to control this the best we can. We're going to control the journey. We're going to be together in this every step of the way, and we're going to get through it together. And so we had that mental mindset to be able to do it. The other thing that was beneficial was the fact that my wife was able to still function and still teach, still be a mother, still go to the gym, and still do things and lead of active life 
The difference was she was on medicine. She was taking, um, you know, blood thinners, whether it was injectable blood thinners or it was a pill. Um, and there were times that she was on a different type of chemo, but she really prided her, herself on trying to live a normal and active life and just be a mom to our kids and be a wife to me and just be a great sister and friend to everybody else. Margaret sounds so wonderful. And I know that that is a, a big tribute to you too, because I know how important it is to have a very supportive spouse when you're going through something like that. Yeah. She had her best friend with her. So yeah. Yeah. We were very close. We, uh, you know, it really brought us even closer together. And those last seven years were the closest we've ever been. And she was just a wonderful person. She had a great sense of humor about her, but she was a very kind, caring, loving individual, loved me unconditionally and loved the people around her unconditionally. And she just had a, had a gentle heart, uh, a kind heart and just a gentle person. And she was just a wonderful person. And, you know, I, to this day, you know, that's, I was married to my wife and that's who the only yeah, one. Yeah. And is today still, I still think of her all the time. And uh, with that, I always think of all the memories fondly. Yeah, I can relate. How did, well, now you have three children. Yes. How did you handle that? They had to know what was going on or didn't they know what was going on? How did you handle it? And they had to have different personalities. And yeah, what we, happened in that, in that department with the kids? So when, we, when she first was diagnosed and we had to go to Dana-Farber back in 2010, we had the conversation with our oldest two kids because they were junior in high school, ninth grade in high school. So that was Megan, who was my oldest, and Harry, who was uh, the second child in ninth grade. And then Julia was in sixth grade. And she was younger, didn't really have as much understanding at that age. And so we talked to the two older kids because when we would leave, they were in charge of the household. You know, Megan took that to heart and said, I'm in charge, I gotta take care of my brother and sister. And so the conversations were a little different. I had more of a conversation with Megan because she was older and she was more grown up. Um, and with Harry was more of a wait and see. And at times we would have conversations. And with Julia it was a lot less. And it wasn't that we hid things. We just didn't always share everything. But when it came to the bigger things, as we had conversations, as the years went by and had to adjust and go back to Dana-Farber after it metastasized to the liver, that was when we were more inclusive with the three of them. And then, of course, upon her death, we had to share that with all three of the kids. How the kids took it and handled it were all different. You know, Megan took it to heart and was like, I'm the big sister, got to take care of my little brother and love my little sister. Um, you know, Harry was, he's a very quiet, reserved kid, a very, um, very similar to Margaret in a lot of ways. And they had a very close relationship, but he kind of, you know, didn't have a lot of people to talk to, but when he did talk to, he would usually talk to me or a close friend and he really would open up and talk about it. And today, you know, we have some very open conversations, which has been special because of his maturity now being 25 years old as same thing with my daughter, Megan. And um, then Julia, as she continued on, um, she of course had to observe things a lot more because she lived with it and she didn't go to college until she went to, she was in college for one semester and then Margaret passed away. And, you know, the conversations, you know, we had them, but she, she could see the signs. She knew something was up, but the three of them also interacted quite a bit together. And that interaction together was very important because they do take care of each other today. And it really helped them to prioritize what's important in life and to really take care of each other. Yeah. Well, that's, 
that's a big um, compliment to the way you and Margaret were together and how you raised your children because it doesn't sound there was like there was any out of the way sibling rivalry or anything. They all banded together and they bonded and they were there for each other, which is absolutely wonderful. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, I always told them to be like their mother, you know, because <laughs> she was such a great person. And ironically, you know, they got some of my traits too, but I try to do my best to be. Well, a they had good role you know, models. That's important. You know, but we, we did pride ourselves on always trying to talk through things, work through things, not to get upset at things, to be able to work through it. And the other thing is when you do go through this experience, as you've gone through a very difficult experience, um, the priorities happen pretty fast. You know, you look at things and all of a sudden the small stuff doesn't matter as much. My kids realize that. And, you know, and I live by that. And I, I, I live by the motto, keep it simple. And by keeping it simple, it's amazing how if you keep it simple, your priorities rise to the top and the little stuff doesn't really affect you. Yeah, you, you sort of uh, lose interest in all that drama that other yep. people seem to like to create for themselves. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> you got it. That's it. <laughs> You state that many of the challenges in life can feel like a bucket of water in the ocean, but when you lost Margaret, she was your ocean. What were some of the steps you took to work through your grieving process? Well, what I did was uh, through through my life, I've always prided myself on trying to find that balance. You know, faith, family, friends, integrity, and always trying to have a moral compass, trying to do the right thing. And when Margaret passed, it ended up being, you know, I lost my balance because I lost my partner. I lost that important person in my life that really helped me to balance. You know, when I was making decisions, I didn't have that person to talk to, to make decisions with and things like that. And that was a big of learning course. curve for me. I really had to uh, work through that and try to figure out how to do that. But what I did was... Um, you know, I made sure that my spirituality was always there. I always made sure that I put the right friends around me. And um, those right friends are the friends who were there pretty much throughout the whole experience. And um, not only the experience, but even when I was younger and smaller <laughs> and just were really great close friends. And um, my, my family was great, you know, whether it was my brother or whether it was um, Margaret's sister and her family, you know, we worked through things together and just try to really connect that way. Now, as she passed, her family, like I talked to her sister, Gail, still every other week, probably. And we talk often. I talk to my in-laws still probably probably every other week too. I try to stay in touch with them. They're getting up in age at 89 years old. And I always want to make sure that I'm in touch with them because they are special people. They raised a special daughter and I always want to make sure I honor them the right way. I stay in touch with my kids and we're very close. And those are things that are important because I'm, as a matter of fact, my youngest is down here with me in Naples because she's working uh, from the condo where I live. And uh, she's not able to get into New York City yet. One once her job starts uh, or once that opens up in New York City, but she's with me. And what I found is what I've worked through is you're very lonely when you first go through this experience. Well, can I relate? Yes, sir. And, and as you're lonely, what I found was it wasn't really the companionship I needed as much. I just needed people around me. Mm -hmm. So as long as I have somebody around me, I'm in a really good place. And as for companionship and things like that, I'm good. I don't need that. I still have such a love and a deep feeling for my wife that it's kind of tough to move on with somebody else because I just don't feel I can give much to somebody else. Um, it's, very, a, it's very hard to compete with that, that memory. 
Yeah. With her, I can relate to that um, with my husband. I mean, you've had someone who's just so wonderful. It's it. You still feel very loyal to them, and you love them, and they were. They were it's tough to find someone that hits all the boxes. <laughs> and I, you know what? And I don't think we'll ever find that. You know, <laughs> but um, but the other thing that I did was I retired a, a little less than a year after she passed away. I she passed in January. I retired in December and of the same year and i came down to florida ended up staying with a good buddy ended up drinking the kool-aid because it's so nice down here it's so beautiful and uh ended up buying a place and now i've been coming down here for the last three years and it's a great getaway but i found that i still had to have some kind of purpose and that purpose i knew i was going to write a book and that book was happened to be a journey without a map but I was going to write a book, this book about more about leadership and things like that, and just take some of the this, this stories and try to guide them into like, hey, here's how you persevere through something, the connections you make with somebody and so on and so forth. And the publisher said, well, your story is actually you. And that's how the book came into uh, and, and evolved. But writing has been a passion of mine, and this writing has actually been very cathartic for me. So it's been helping me through this whole process. The other thing that has been very important to me is I've been a lacrosse coach for over 30 years. And when I came down here, coincidentally, you know, you put people in your path. A year and a half ago, I played golf in a league. My first time I ever played in the league down at the golf course that I belong to down here. And it just so happens that the person who's in my group is the lacrosse coach. By the end and by the end of the 18 holes, he was asking me if I would be his assistant lacrosse coach at a local high school with coaching these girls in, in a varsity team and I ended up joining him and I found that the joy of lacrosse and coaching and connecting with kids still has helped me out tremendously to be able to move forward. You know it happened you know when Margaret was going through her battle I had two years where I didn't coach but Margaret said to the coach I used to work with hey make sure you bring him back he needs to coach with you and he did and that was special. That really saved you in a lot of ways. It did. And it's it still does. Mm -hmm. I can yeah. understand that. I can really understand that. Uh, how, how, share with us how the way your mother handled the loss of your dad inspired the different way you handled the loss of Margaret. Well, what I found was, you know, when my father passed away in 2002, I was, I had a great relationship with my father and uh, he was a teacher and I ended up being a teacher and we had a lot of commonalities, you know, he, he was a guy who, you know, was, was the funny guy, liked the bus chops on others and things like that. And we just they really had a great relationship and we laughed all the time. And, you know, I would drive him nuts, Irene. I mean, literally nuts. <laughs> and, and he'd be like to my older brother, I don't know what I'm going to do with John today, you know? But in the long run, I was the one who eulogized him, you know, and, and honored him when he passed away. And the reality of that was my mother was a, a single child and she grew up in a household where her parents already passed away and she was she didn't have any siblings or anybody like that. And she had like my my aunts from my father's side and you know his sisters and things like that that she connected to. But she ended up becoming pretty much of a loner and really reclusive. And I watched it and I tried to get her out and I tried to get her active. But as anybody, you can't keep pushing somebody. They have to realize it within themselves in order right. to be able to do things. And so I always respected that with my mom. And I always went over and I try to take care of her whatever way I can. But even back then, even before the diagnosis, I said, there's no way 
that I'm going to do that to myself, whether, you know, it's with Margaret or without Margaret. And then when Margaret did pass, I made the, you know, conscious decision that there's no way I'm going to have to live life and I'm going to have to have a purpose every single day in life. And I'm going to have to go outside and walk around and I'm going to have to figure out what my next step is of that day, what my schedule is, because if it's pretty easy for somebody to sit on a couch and watch TV all day. Absolutely. And the other thing you did, which was really important to me when I lost my husband, I vowed that I was going to get through this and keep moving forward so that I would be a role model to my son because I knew that he was watching me and he was grieving also and that one day he'd have his own family and he'd have his own kids. But what was I showing him? And look at what you did. You changed that script in your family and you've set such a wonderful example for your kids because they're gonna go through things too in their lives and they're gonna know like dad, I can, I can make it through this. Yes. And what you just said is exactly the purpose of why I did it. You know, I did it for myself, but I had to do it for others. And I had to do it for others because they were hurting too. And I had to give them permission to move forward as much as I need to move forward. I also love that term moving forward, because what I find with everybody who I've been talking with over the past year about grief is they use the term moving forward because a lot of people want to just say, I'll move on. And when they move on, they want to forget about what they went through. Now, moving forward is you still are attached to what has happened in the past. And I really like that uh, term. And you're spot on by me moving forward. It gives other people inspiration or at least motivation to be all able the to time. Yep. Every single day. Every single day. I, I find the same thing and people go, wow, I admire you. And I go, I, oh, you know, I went through all this, all this help and this therapy and all these things that I did. And I, and thank God, you know, um, that I could do that. And it's a lot better on this side than to stay stuck on, on that other end. That's the whole purpose of grief and rebirth. So I want to also ask you, you talk about the power of connection and why it's so important to a grieving person. Would you like to tell our listeners about that, our audience about that? Absolutely. What I found was going through this journey um, in 2010, when she was diagnosed, there were a lot of people that came out, you know, initially we kept it, we kept it close to the vest. We didn't share with everybody, but we were community members. And so people knew our story and it was getting out there and people, you know, you would have people come and say, oh, what can we do? And people wanted to like, you know, do a fundraiser and they want to send food over and they want to, and it was like, well, hold on a second, guys. We got a diagnosis, but she's still living normal as we are as a family family. And those people all went away. It wasn't that we told them to go away, but, you know, they initially do something for a month and then you don't see them for the next five years. Right. And, 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 you know, not to any fault of their own, but that's just the reality of life. But the ones that stuck around, like my boy, boyhood friends, there's, you know, eight of us together and we text and we talk all the time when we connect all the time. As a matter of fact, this time of the year, they would be down in Florida, but because of the pandemic, they're not because we usually have our annual golf outing that we do together. Um, those guys were there for me, every one of them. You know, the moment she was diagnosed, they came over to the house, we had a barbecue, they just hung out, whatever you need, John, whatever you need, Margaret, whatever the kids needed, they did it and they support it. And, you know, Michael, Dr. Mike Lacombe is one of those people. You know, another person who's in that group is a lawyer who helped and supported us through all the difficult paperwork that we had to go through. And, um, you know, each one of them had a role in a different way and it was very special. 
then I have three coaches that I worked with for many years and I coached with, and they were there always for me. And coaching gave me that outlet, but they were always there to support me. And those friendships were second to none. And as I spoke about the doctor, you know, he was there even closer because he really got us through every step of the way as the other doctors did too. Even getting the scans over to him to look at scans and just really get an understanding of what it's all about. But he also was that person who would stop over every once in a while out of the blue with a six pack of beer and just say, hey, how you doing, you know, and, and having a beer. And then I had the lacrosse coach, Mike Felice, who um, is our head coach up at Liverpool. And he he's 20 years younger than me, but he's got the wisdom and the character of somebody who is wise because of his own experiences of going through cancer himself and also losing his mother as my kids lost their mother at a young age. And talking to him, he was always there to help and support me. And he was just ready for me to, you know, either break down and lose it or, you know, hey, whatever you need. And, and he was there and it was very special because um, he got it. He understood it and that type of relationship. And then I had the player. I, I had a player who, you know, all my players I love, you know, and, and I had this one player who ironically, we talked about New Zealand earlier, and um, he lives in New Zealand today. But when Margaret passed, I got a phone call from him and he said, coach, you're always there for me. So I'm here for you, whatever you need. Wonderful. You know, I call it, I tell people when they have, um, they're, they're um, dealing with very difficult problems, find your wagon train. Find, so it's, it really is to exactly what you say about the quality of your friends versus the, or the quality of the people around you versus the quantity. Because I always say, like different people fulfill different roles, but find those people who you can trust who are going to be around you. You don't need to have a lot of them, like your lawyer was one and this one was another. These were the spokes on the wheel that kind of surrounded you mm -hmm. and, and helped you. And, and the irony is that, you know, very close friends, they just happen to be in certain roles, you know, and uh, I, it was very special because I, I, they understood it. They were able to get through it and, and their heart bled for me and Margaret and my family because they knew what we were going through, but, and they were very empathetic. And that's something that as you keep growing, as you get older, you become so much more empathetic. And then you go through an experience like this, you even become more empathetic and um, you, you grow you grow your spirituality, you grow your beliefs and you grow, grow you as a person to be kinder, calmer, uh, a better listener and just better to people. You also learn, at least I, that's the way I'm, I'm sure you're the same way to value every minute because you know that there's not a lot of guarantees. So make a quality with what you, what you have. Every one of the moments with all the people in your life who mean something to you. And in addition to that, it's not only the quality of every moment, it's taken one moment at a time too. Yeah. I cherish today, I'll figure out tomorrow, tomorrow, but I'm not gonna figure out tomorrow today. So I focus on today. Very, very wise, such wise advice for everyone, John. What Thank is you. one of the signs that you receive from Margaret to tell you she's around you? And what do those signs symbolize to you? Do they have you know any special meaning and do you see some of them more often than others? Well, she loved the color yellow and uh, the color yellow, whenever I see it, you know, I do still buy roses and I put them up and around the house. Um, yes. I, I, you know, I, whenever I see somebody wearing a yellow pair of shoes, I'm like, all right, there she is, you know, and they could be a high top pair of Chuck Taylor uh, Converse All-Stars because that was something that was highlighted in the book, but also other people as they've read the book have actually sent me pictures.
pictures of their yellow Convert All-Stars and things like that. And so what I see and recognize is when those type of things happen, I feel that her spirit is with us. And that spirit with us is very special. Um, spirit in the Sky is a song that I have on my phone. And that was a song that she loved and wanted to be played at her funeral. And that comes on every once in a while. And of course, when that comes on in the car, that, that's exactly what it is. And I'm like, okay, here we go. <laughs> and I go, and, you know, I'm looking up going, all right, am I doing okay? Am I doing the right thing here? You know, um, but, you know, there, there's a lot of little things. But the biggest thing that I see through my is I see my wife through my kids. I see the special qualities that they have and the kindness and the softness. My, my youngest daughter really has so much of it. I used to call her mini mommy. And, um, you know, I really see such, such um, grace from my kids that are, is a reflection of their mother. And that is probably the most special thing that I have because they'll do something and I'll be like, yep, that's Margaret. <laughs> that's the greatest gift they can give you when that happens and you see her reflected in them. That's wonderful. That's yes. just so wonderful. So give some people who are listening and watching some great advice about what do you say or what don't you say to someone who has a significant loss in his or her life and is grieving because a lot of people say a lot of wrong things yeah. or they feel yeah. very tongue-tied. There, there's a lot of times it's silence and people don't know that they're, they have permission to be able to say something to you. And sometimes initially they just are like, you know, um, you know, what would be a quote, uh, you know, it was God's plan or, right. you know, okay, yeah, it was, but you know, it kind of stinks, you know, <laughs> um, but people say moving on, you got to move on and that's false. They should not say that. Some people try to relate a death of a, uh, you know, 91 year old grandparent to losing your spouse. And I'm empathetic to that because they do want to try to connect with me. And I understand that but it's totally different. When you lose a spouse, and I believe when you lose a child, there's nothing, or a close partner, right. you know, right. close that close connection that you have, there's, there's not a lot that can connect with that. Okay. Um, so what I say to people is I say, if they stumble or they struggle or they don't say anything to me, I say, hey, it's okay. And then I might mention and bring something up about Margaret. And I may say, you know what, you know, Margaret really, really enjoyed this. She would have loved to, you know, watch this game or she would have loved to just gone for this walk and just enjoy the beauty of what it is. And then what I do is I have them come out and they talk. And what I find, though, that the majority of the time is the silence that people have around you and they're afraid to share. And the reality of it is I wish they would ask and I wish they would share. What I found over the last four years is that I don't feel the need myself to talk about Margaret to others as much. Whereas I felt that at first people needed to know my story. I come down to Florida and I'd be like, hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a widower. And, um, you know, they'd be like, oh, wow, you know, that's that's pretty powerful stuff. And but then all of a sudden some people would say, you know, hey, I. I get it. You know, I lost somebody too. And, you know, then we would have that connection and that was pretty nice. But what I found is writing the book, talking about it more like through these interviews and podcasts and the different things that I do. Um, I don't have to really have to share my story as much anymore. Um, 
I, and I, I it's, it's kind of funny because I'm coaching this group of girls right now. And now here I am, I'm a transplant from New York down here. And I don't know if these girls really know my story, but you know what? It's okay. It's okay. Because I don't want them to know my story if it's not necessary. However, maybe they do. And maybe they're just being respectful of it because they're such a great group of kids. And it's, it's okay if they know my story, but don't share it with me. Mm-hmm. Because, but all that I would want them to do is to truly understand who their coach is and where he comes from. Right. It um, sounds like as far as you come with this, you've done a lot. It's, it's a reflection of your healing. Yes. Because it's, because your need, your needs are changing Yes. and you're not as needy for it anymore. So you've healed certain parts of it, which is, so that brings me to therapy. How yes. much did, how did therapy play a role in helping you to move forward in such a healthy fashion? How'd you find your therapist? And a lot of men are much too proud to go to therapy, you know? So how were you open to that and how did it work? How was that helpful? And did the therapist also help you when it came to your kids too? Yes, okay, all the above. Uh, All the above. So the first year what happened was you're numb. You're trying to figure things out. You're waking up every day, but you're trying to figure out your purpose. Your mind's kind of jumbled and you're like, what am I doing? Um, you're going through the motions. You're watching TV, but nothing's registering, you know, things like that. You're reading a book and you forgot what you read. All of a sudden, eight months into it, we go over to uh, Hull, uh, Massachusetts, which was right outside of uh, Boston, right on the water with our good friends, the Chipmans. And I came to the realization I'm hanging out with them. And now Mary Alice Chipman, who's the wife, was best friends with Margaret and was one of the people that eulogized her. And we're hanging out and I have my kids there and I'm finding I'm in a, going into a depression because I'm not interacting with anybody. I'm secluding myself. I'm removing myself out of a good time and just going down and just, you know, watching TV mindlessly. You're bed. You're starting to breathe. I'm, I'm I, in, a, in a major way, in a big yes. way. And I realized right there that it was time for me to reach out to a therapist. So I went back to work the next week. And I, I think it's such so admirable that you even were open to that. I know so many people who are not, and it takes such courage to do that. And, and, and I admire people who have the courage to do that. I think it's wonderful that you were open to that. Well, thank you. I appreciate that because it's trying to be reflective and recognizing things within yourself. And I've always tried to be very reflective of who I am to do, to be a better person. And so I, I had, because I was a principal, I had a psychologist and a counselor that was um, in my building working with me. And it just so happened it was the summertime and they were in the building and I called them both into my office. And I said, hey, I need a little help here. Any recommendations? And my counselor had a great recommendation. And this therapist, uh, she, she, I connected with her, went in, and for about three months, I worked with her, I would say probably every other week, and she was absolutely fantastic. She got it. She was just a wonderful person, and we worked through a lot of things, but what you find when you go through therapy is that you think it's one thing, but it really is other things, because what came out in my therapy sessions was the one, one thing was a couple things about my mom's experience. There were experiences with some others and so on and so forth. And she really worked me through it. So now today, even three years later, uh, just in the fall, as a matter of fact, I connected with her before I came down to Florida. And um, 
you know, I still stay in touch. He says, John, anytime you need to reach out to me, please reach out to me. I'm here for you. And so I do do that on occasions, but I'm your troubleshooter. She's your troubleshooter. Yeah, troubleshooter. And uh, the first three months, I would say it was more intensive, but I was able to work through it. And then I always stayed in touch with her. And she's just a wonderful, wonderful person. And she knew I was going to be writing a book. And then she finally read the book right in the fall. And she got back to me and she said, John, this is going to help a lot of people. And she was very complimentary to what what I was able to write. And she knew a lot of those stories, too. and then she did help some of the members of my family. Uh, you know, they, they certain members reached out. Uh, you know, some of my kids are not living in the Syracuse area, so they try to work with their own support somewhere else. But they try to reach out to the, use their resources too. And I think I, I don't try not to be an example of that. But what I do is I try to share with others that it was very helpful, and it was. Um, it was very helpful to the point where it helped me to move forward and be able to um, recognize some things in me and then also heal. Now, in addition to that, and I think I wrote, I may have wrote this in the book, I can't remember, but what I found was writing it down like I did in the book was even more healing than just going and talking to a therapist because it became more permanent by writing it down. And by writing it down in that permanency ended up creating something that got out of my mind so I could move forward because now it was there and it was out there. Yeah, you kind of, you expelled it in a way. I did, I expelled it. That's a good way to put it. Good word there, Irene, I appreciate that. And I did expel it. And I, I think because of expelling it, it really helped me to move forward. And not that moving forward is perfect. Like I said, I still checked in with my therapist last, you know. Well, you go back and forth. It's like a few steps back and then a couple more steps forward. And every once in a while you take a step back. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, I recommend to anybody who is going through a very difficult time, who's holding things in, who doesn't have a resource to be able to talk with somebody, to reach out to a therapist. And it's amazing if you, you know, if you have health insurance, you know, how the health insurance will cover that because health insurances are recognizing that. I think the mental health, um, where we are with mental health in this world today is becoming more prominent and the word is getting out there more and more. The problem is we still lack so many resources and those lack of resources really holding some people back. But what's holding people back sometimes too is themselves by not taking that step to therapy. And I know that the people who finally make that step to therapy, it does help them to move forward and it makes them become the whole person that they're capable of becoming. I, I could not agree with you Double, triple, and quadruple. I could not agree with you more. Uh, John, I know that you've moved forward. What keeps you going every single day? What is it in your mind? What is your mindset when you get up in the morning? You're still without Margaret, but you're moving forward. Well, I have a quote that I use. I go to read you the quote. Every day I wake up, I have a choice to make. Do I want to have a good day or do I want to have a bad one? Do I want to be sad, mad, have self-pity, or do I want to be happy? I've made the decision that I will have good days because that is my responsibility to my wife, to my kids, to my friends, and to all the people around me. And what that truly means, that used to be up on my mirror, but now it's just the quote that I live by. The responsibility that I have is to myself first. But because of that responsibility to myself first to make sure I'm going to be okay that day, it can reflect out to everybody else. 
And then what I found is that, you know, I wake up during the day and I've got in a great routine of working out. So I have the body along with the mind. I'm finding purpose by writing a lot. You know, my fifth published book is coming out soon and I'm very excited about that. Um, if you told me, if you told me five years ago or even three years ago that I was going to have this many books coming out and being published, I would have said, no, that's crazy. And the reality of it is it's happening. That's given me a purpose. And what I found is so much enjoyment of that, you know, by writing a journey without a map, the enjoyment is to help people who are grieving and are going through a very difficult challenge in their life. The other books that I'm writing is the happiness with kids and it gets me back to my wheelhouse. But I also find that coaching with kids, being able to still teach kids the game of lacrosse is very special. And then doing everything at my pace and at my time. I love that. I love waking up at my time and being able to go grab a cup of coffee I'm and, being able to, here. <laughs> and re relax, go through the beginning of my day casually, quietly, normally without the feeling of I have to go here, 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 or the pressure of having to answer to a boss at a job to be able to say, okay, and get all stressed out over that. I'm not a stressed out person. I'm also in Florida. Today was 80 degrees and sunny. I was out on a lacrosse field coaching lacrosse. I played golf this morning, shorts and a golf shirt. It was wonderful with two, with three great friends and we laughed for 18 holes. And then I coached lacrosse with a group of girls and a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and I taught and it was wonderful. And then I came home and I had dinner with my daughter and then, and now I'm here talking with you. Now all. you're here talking with me and with all of our, our listening audience. How, how special is that? that how is special awesome. is that? That's I a, love it. It's a, a great wind up to your day. <laughs> so before I ask you how Margaret's been memorialized and about legacies, I want to hear about this new book because I've got two boys. I've got actually three grandsons. So tell us about your new book for kids titled Quick Stick Harry and the Legend of Laxbro Johnny. And what age group is it intended for? And tell us about it. Is it something I want to get my 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 grandsons? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I have to say. Okay. <laughs> So tell me why. <laughs> so, so, so what happened is, uh, you know, I was, I wrote a children's, I wrote a children's al uh, alphabet book back in 2000. And I also had a whole file of ideas that were put in a bucket that literally sat there for 20 years. And after I wrote a journey without a map, I went back into the bucket. I was cleaning out my basement a little bit because I was planning on selling my house last spring, but the pandemic hit. And this was the house up in Syracuse. And also, I look at and there's all these ideas with quicks that carry, quicks that carry plays lacrosse, quicks that carry plays midfield, so on and so forth. And I started sitting down going, I think I get more creative than that. And so I decided to do a book series and it's characters based on my son, Harry, um, and it's quicks that carry. And the first book actually is called quicks that carry and the ball hog. And it takes you through a story of, you know, this child playing lacrosse and with a, you know, and of course you have that selfish player who doesn't want to pass the ball and you have the parents that say it's okay, it's fine. And then he becomes an unselfish player and they win the championship. And it's a really exciting book and it's geared for kids who are two to 10 years old. So it's more of your primary age kids. And 
it, it really, the response has been absolutely wonderful. I'm very involved in lacrosse for 50 years. So I, that's my wheelhouse. That's my platform. And what I love about it is that it, it's, it's getting out there in the lacrosse world and people are really responding to it favorably. And it's, a, and there's nothing like it in the lacrosse world. So what I did was I already had three books planned. So the next book that should be coming out by the end of the month, um, is called Quicksick Harry and the Legend of Laxbro Johnny. And it takes a child who's kind of a nerdy child who goes into school, who just loves, you know, mathematics and, and the academics. And his buddy is, you know, is Quicksick Harry, who's like, I, he's looking at the clock and he's like, can't wait to go out and play lacrosse at recess, you know? And of course, you know, Jonathan is his name at the time, has a transformation. And he goes from all of a sudden being this nerdy character to all of a sudden this lax bro with flowing hair and learning about the game of lacrosse and falling in love with it. So I won't give too much details beyond that. No, but it sounds but, like a kid who doesn't know what lacrosse is is also going to learn about, absolutely. about the game. It is. It, it is. It's a, it's a learning tool for the kids. It gives history like there's history in Laxbro Johnny. He learns a Native American spirit comes back and he tells them about the game. So he has an understanding that it is a game that came from our Native American heritage and that it's a very special game for the creator. Um, the other game was about, you know, the ball hog and how to be a teammate and how to be a better teammate. And the next ball is the next book is going to be Quicksick Harry uh, meets round ball Gabby. So I introduce a female character. And of course, Harry has, you know, falls in love with her, you know, everything. but she, <laughs> she's the best female lacrosse player in the town, you know, and she, every ground ball she gets, she wins a game, you know, so it's, it's definitely a teaching tool for kids in the game of lacrosse. Wow. That sounds great. I think I'm going to have to find out when you're, when you're coming out with that, because I have a couple of kids who might really love to read that. Well, uh, Quick Stick Harry and the Ball Hog is already out and it's on Amazon. So. Okay, that's great. As is, as is your current, as is this book on Amazon, right? So people want to get it. Yep, that's it. Journey Without a Map is also. Um, tell us how Mar Margaret's been memorialized. Why is leaving a legacy important? And what do you feel will be your legacy, John? Well, I appreciate you asking that question because I don't always get asked about legacy and I think it's very important, but how we memorialize Margaret was um, there's two lacrosse scholarships in honor of Margaret. She was very involved, not only as a mother, but as a booster parent. She watched all the kids play lacrosse. She watched hundreds of games that I've coached. She's been there for all of it. And so we thought, because my kids all played lacrosse in our, at our, at our school, Liverpool Central School District, Liverpool lacrosse. Um, we ended up making a scholarship in honor that, uh, for, in, in her memory, for a graduating senior um, on the girls, in the girls program and a graduating senior in the boys program. And, yeah. And so today we have, I think we're up to 13 scholarships. And along with those 13 scholarships, there's been a number of those scholarship receivers who actually had her as a teacher. So it was mm -hmm. very special. Um, in addition, we raised some money and we uh, created a reading corner for her in the corner of the school library where she taught. And it's called the Mrs. Sardella Reading Corner. And it's, you know, yellow and it's orange and it's a beautiful reading corner. There's a picture of it in the book. And, um, you know, kids go there, they have to have a, you know, they have to fill out a form or a little ticket to get over there and read. And, you know, it's a really quiet um, and the, and the, 
librarian said that she never has any issues with anybody going over there. So it must be because Margaret Spirit's over there and saying, right there. you're going to be a good boy, <laughs> you know, or a good girl. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, they're, they're, I've lived in this evolve and I don't know where it's going to go and I'm maybe someday it will be, but I'd love to do something with the yellow sneaker fund, you know, create a fund that will, I don't know whether it's to help somebody who's going through a difficult time or I, I really don't know, but it's something that's always been on my mind to be able to try to create. And the only thing I would ask the people to do is wear a pair of yellow sneakers to honor that in the money they receive and to, you know, maybe take a picture and get it on a website or something like that. But, you know, I've thought about, you know, one of the things that we did was we went on a cruise a year after Margaret passed and it was just me and the three kids just to try to forget about it during Christmas at the time. And I was thinking, you know, could I have people go away for a weekend, you know, just to get away, try to get their mind off of what the difficulties that they're having or they've gone through. And maybe it's for the remaining family members or something like that, just to give them an outlet for a day or two to be able to say, hey, I needed this. And uh, it, you know, can bring a smile to their face. Absolutely. Why do you feel having a legacy is so important? Why is leaving a legacy very important? Well, you know, I think what the legacy is, is that simple explanation to me of the legacy isn't that that's a legacy isn't my purpose. My purpose is to live. And if a legacy that is impactful for others comes out of that, that's all I need. That's something special. But I do believe that people should try to find a purpose in their life. And if they find a purpose in their life, I happen to find a purpose as an educator, as a coach, as an author, as a speaker, as you name it, you know, there's just a lot of things. But most importantly, my legacy is really being a good dad and, you know, being a wonderful husband to Margaret and just trying to be a good friend to others. And I think that if I can do that, I hope when, you know, I go past and when I do pass away, people can say, hey, that was a good guy. He made a difference. You made a difference in people's lives and you're a tremendous role model for people. Um, now everyone who's listening to this wants to connect with you. So give them all your contact information. Okay, well, very simple, put, simply put, they can just contact me at johnsardella.com to go to the website and all my contact information is there. I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook. So People could reach out to me on any of those platforms. Um, it's John Sardella, basically. Oh, it's with them. John, J-O-H-N-S-A-R-D-E-L-L-A, correct? Correct, dot com. You got okay. it. Okay, okay. Yeah. And John, you of all people, what would you say your tip is for finding joy in life? Bringing joy, I think it's all in mind and perspective. I think waking up in the day and saying everything's going to be okay today. And I think if you can say everything's going to be okay today, even if you had a bump in the road, it's how you handle it, how you manage it, you're going to be fine. And if you yourself can be in good, good mind and good spirit, it's amazing how reflective that is out to others. And as it's out to others, I think people can feed off that positive energy and that, and, and themselves become better. And then it just is a ripple effect. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. John, your book, A Journey Without a Map, Stories of Loss, Grief, and Moving Forward, inspires those who are facing adversity to find ways to help others and keep progressing. Its messages are meaningful and empowering. Thank you for writing such a heartfelt, helpful book. And thank you for this poignant interview. 
And here's a reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us. We know you do. On social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. As I like to say, to be continued, many blessings and bye for now. We're done. Thank you, Irene. That was that wonderful. Was great. That was great. Thank you. Thank Please you. spread it far and wide and let people know. And there'll be a lot of people listening to you. We are averaging 700 to 1,000 people per episode just in the first couple of weeks. It's amazing. That's awesome. It's awesome. That's awesome. Hopefully you'll be seeing, you know, more book selling and, you know, making a real difference for people. It's just wonderful. Well, I appreciate that, Irene. It was wonderful talking to you. You you're do you. you do a great job. You you definitely reflect out in a real with great positive energy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Hey, someone's smiling on me too. You know. Yeah, you got. Well, I got my partner too. He's he's <laughs> helping me too. Yeah. I want to tell you a really funny aside, and then I know we have to go. But this is a very funny. My husband had an unbelievable sense of humor. He was a wise guy. Like you were talking about your dad. Yeah. And uh, so three months, uh, no, about three years after um, Saul died, um, I took up all my courage and I went on a cruise by myself to Hawaii. And I met a guy there on the cruise and we, you know, seemed to hit it off, broke up later, but we seemed to hit it off. And um, he came to visit me in America and he he, he walks in my door. He called me Rini. He goes, he was from England. He goes, Rini, I don't know what it was, but I went to the, the duties counter and I've never heard of this cologne, but I had to buy this cologne and wear it special for you. I, something was like really prodding me to get this cologne. It was my husband's cologne. I was like, huh. you buster you. <laughs> 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 I absolutely know that. Some people get butterflies. I got the I got the cologne. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh, I love it. So, so we all have our signs. That's not what I usually tell people about, but I thought John will appreciate my my story. <laughs> absolutely, and you can laugh about it. That's just oh, absolutely. It. And I was like. Okay. What I really said to myself was, you ball buster you. <laughs> I love it, Irene. That's great. <laughs> so um, let me end here, but I so appreciate you and thank you so much for coming on. And like I like to say to be continued, stay in touch. Absolutely. Let us know when stuff is happening. You can reach out to other people on the podcast. If you, and the other thing is, if you run across people who you think would be wonderful people for me to interview, please sure. connect us by email. And the okay. other thing I'm starting to do is I'm doing a new segment where um, people who have been in their swamps, gone through something, 
and moved from their swamp to moving forward. Like you would be a typical rebirth story, except you also wrote the book. So I'm featuring you with your book, but I'm interviewing Mr. and Mrs. Ordinary Person who went through hell mm -hmm. and they came out of it, which is another way to inspire people to rebirth themselves and, and to know that yeah. they can move forward. So even if you run into someone like that, some you got it. way. You got it. I thank you, sir. Uh, Irene, thank you very much. Thank you. I really thank appreciate you. it. Yeah, thank you. thank you. All the best. Thank you. To be continued. Mm -hmm.